Today's reading comes from Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. This summer, my family and I were vacationing on the, uh, the Panhandle Coast in Florida, uh, between kind of near to Destin. And we love, we go to the same spot every year, and we love going there. And one of the things we love about it is the wildlife that we get to see. There can be days where you're out in the surf and a school of rays will come through, or a day where a manatee will slowly uh, swim by, or, and we see a lot of dolphins over the course of the week. This summer, uh, we were playing on the beach early one morning and just hanging out, and uh, there was, there was a, a shadow that was moving a- along the beach. Now, most things like dolphins and manatees you see come up to take a breath, and, and this wasn't, and so it kind of looked like a school of fish, but it kind of didn't. And so I was terribly curious, and we typically rent a couple of paddle boards, and so I took a, a paddle board out because I was, I was wondering, you know, this looks somehow different, and as I came upon it, it just kind of disappeared. I assumed the school of fish had just kind of scattered. But as I, I started to turn, there was a little movement out of the corner of my eye. And as I looked down into my right, there were two four- to five-foot sharks that were just cruising down the beach that morning. And so, you know, in a moment like that, you have a number of thoughts that run through your head very quickly. <laughs> One thought was, well, we probably should get the kids out of the water for a little bit as they're splashing in the surf. And uh, another is, I want to get into shore really quickly. But there is this notion of, have I really thought this through? Like, I'm out here on a, a small kind of board with a paddle. And if it was one shark, fine. I could take one shark. But two, <laughs> the odds are a little bit in their favor. And so you have this moment like, I, you know, have I, thought, have I really prepared for this moment? I knew it might be something like this. And here I am. Raises the notion for us this morning of preparation, of what we really believe is going to transpire and how we believe uh, or how we prepare for that thing to transpire. And of course, what's before us today is the return of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? And if you believe that Jesus is coming back, how is that belief evidenced in your preparation or how is it not evidenced? 
in your preparation. And when we talk about the return of Jesus, we, we inevitably obviously have to talk about that he's left, right? Jesus has come, he's entered into this world, he's died, he was risen from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and now he's gone, and no one expected that, right? Judaism expected that when the Messiah would come, he would enter into the story of this world, and time as they knew it would come to an end. But time as they knew it did not come to an end, Jesus then withdrew, and we live in between the times, in between his first coming and his second coming, and if you start to think about it, it's a little bit frustrating, Why didn't Jesus just wrap everything up on his first arrival? It's not like we're waiting for a second crucifixion and resurrection, right? The cross was pretty decisive. What are we still doing here? We might ask that in moments particularly of pain or suffering or loneliness. Why can't this just be done? Now, the Bible doesn't explain to us all of the reasons why Jesus comes once and then comes again and leaves, at least physically, in between. But it does tell us that it's an opportunity for God's mercy to be further extended. It's an opportunity for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth and to continue to go out to the ends of the earth. But it was also an opportunity for us in some way to experience abundant life. For us to experience something. You know, if God has allowed for a time between the times, then we have to say that there's something good and something purposeful in it, even though we don't fully understand what that is. It should cause us to begin to ask, do we really value the time in between the times? In other words, are we being thoughtful about it and preparing, or are we just kind of sitting here waiting for Jesus to come back or for us to die? Is your life characterized by a, there must be wisdom and goodness in this if it exists, so I'm going to pursue it, or is your life more of a, eh, Jesus is going to come back sooner or later, I'm going to die sooner or later, and everything will be taken care of then. So it doesn't really matter what I do. But to start to begin to value uh, the preparedness, because when we hear a stark warning like this, and Jesus' warning is going to be incredibly harsh, right? At the end, those five young women who are foolish show up at the celebration of the wedding, and they're not allowed in, and Jesus, the bridegroom in the parable says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Echoing Matthew 7, in which Jesus says that directly. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Obviously, we're not working with something this morning that we can mess around with. It's not something that should be taken lightly. But at the same time, I think to hear it rightly, you have to hear it in love. Right? Would you be loving of your child if you, if you never told them to prepare for aspects of life? Right? Oh, high school, have fun. College, no big deal. Right? You'll get in somewhere. Right? That wouldn't be a loving act. A warning to prepare for something that's actually going to happen is an act of love. It's an act of compassion, and that's what Jesus is doing here. It's an act of love that we would be properly prepared and properly appropriate and think about the time that we have between the times so that when we do meet Him, it's something of joy. And right, in preparing, we experience more of Him here and now. That's the joy that's held out to us. So, how do we be grateful for this time? How do we prepare for Jesus' second coming? Let's consider the parable. And the first thing we need to consider is the danger of being unprepared. Right? That's the chief warning here. So what does it mean to be unprepared? Uh, we don't know a lot about Jewish weddings in the first century. 
So some of what we're doing is guesswork based on other cultures and how they engaged in weddings. But we know that a wedding ceremony a celebration could go on for days. And that nighttime processions weren't terribly uncommon because it was really fun to get the torches out and to have a spectacle at night and uh, to, for there to be dancing in the midst of this procession. And the ten young virgins are, are nothing more than uh, essentially bridesmaids. They may be friends of the groom. They may be friends of the bride. All it means is they're not married yet. And they would be part of the dancing that would probably accompany this procession at night. And of course, they're responsible for their part. You can't have a procession at night without torches. Now, a torch in the first century, I'm not sure what you have in your mind. You may be thinking of a Coleman lantern. right? It's a bunch of strips of cloth wrapped around a stick. And the cloth is soaked in oil and then lit. And once it's lit, the oil will burn for about 15 minutes. And then you have to re-soak the cloth and light it again. If you run out of oil, your torch goes out. You can't relight it. It's about as useful as a flashlight without batteries. So, what's going on in the parable? At midnight, these people like late parties, the groom is delayed. Not a big deal. Not necessarily surprising. These things could be delayed for any number of reasons. In fact, there are accounts of, of ancient Near Eastern weddings which get delayed for an incredible amount of time because the uh, parents of the bride and groom argue at considerable length over the, uh, the value of what's being offered for the bride price. Uh, but it's really a, actually a very sophisticated exchange. For those of you who have had a wedding or may have a wedding in the future, uh, they would sit down and um, what you do is this dance but the dance communicates value so that the parents, by the bride saying, this really isn't valuable enough for my bride, are saying, we love our daughter. She's very special to us. But it also communicates to the parents of the groom, uh, oh yes, we've made a very good choice. Right? You are honoring our wisdom and our choice by saying how valuable your daughter is. And so by this, this bargaining that goes on for some time, This is what the families communicate to each other, and it's a valued tradition and custom. So, for whatever reason, the groom is delayed, the procession is held up, and what does everybody do? It's important. They go to sleep. Nobody stays up. Neither the wise young women or the foolish young women, those who have extra oil and those who don't have oil, nobody stays awake. They all go to sleep. Finally, the cry comes. The groom is on his way. Let's get this party started. Everybody wakes up, lights the torches. Five young women realize they don't have enough oil, and so they begin to panic. So they say, why don't you share your oil with us? Then everybody will have enough oil. And the five wise young ladies say, no, that's not going to happen. If we share with you, then nobody's going to have enough. We're all going to run out, and it will be a bigger catastrophe than when we started. And so the five foolish young women have to run to the oil store, which nobody knows why an oil store would be open at midnight or in the wee hours of the morning in the ancient world. But this is, it's a parable, right? You don't, it doesn't have to all make sense. So they run to the oil store, and why uh, they come back from the oil store, but it's too late. The procession has taken place, and the door is shut to the party, and they're excluded from the party. Their lack of preparation has uh, cost them a great deal. And so the message here, at least initially, is don't be unprepared. 
be ready for what you know is going to occur. They knew that the groom would be coming. They knew they had a responsibility to participate in the procession, and they were found unprepared at the time that these events took place. And what's more in this culture, you have to understand that there probably, as the audience is hearing this parable being told, there would have been a little at the not having enough oil because it would be such an insult to the family to compromise their celebration. Why didn't the celebration go like it was supposed to go? Because these five young women didn't have the oil they were supposed to have. They've ruined the affair or they've made it less than it was intended to be. And in a culture of shame, which the ancient Near East is, that's a big deal. You've insulted a family and brought shame upon yourself. That's why they're barred out at the end of the story. And so it raises the question for us, if, if we do run the risk of not being prepared, if we do run the risk of not being ready, when the groom comes, who is of course Jesus for us, we have to ask the question, why are we not prepared? Why are we tempted to not be ready? Part of us wants to, would of course say, of course I want to be ready. The biggest day in the history of the cosmos will be when Jesus comes back or when I go to meet him in death. And to not be ready for that day, the biggest day of my entire life, well, that would be foolish. And yet at the same time, we all recognize that we're not prepared. So where does, the, where does this disharmony occur? Why does it occur? Why don't we do what we know is best for us? Well, imagine that you're, you're playing some significant role in an upcoming wedding. Let's say, just for the sake of this example, that you are the wedding coordinator and you've been contracted by friends to plan their wedding. The day comes and you're not ready. So what must have been true of you if you're not ready for the day that the wedding comes, for putting on the affair for your friends? Well, a number of things could have been true. Number one, you might simply have believed that it wasn't going to happen. You might have said, yeah, I'm happy to do that, in the back of your mind thinking, you two are never going to marry each other. It's just not, you're going to, it's going to blow up. You're not going to go through with it. I don't believe it's going to happen, so it would be silly for me to get ready for it. Or you might believe that it's going to happen, but maybe you're just disinterested. Maybe you think about the wedding of this friend and this person, and you really, you think, oh, I don't really like that friend. And the person they're marrying, I like even less. So why am I going to prepare for that wedding? That would be foolish. It would be a waste of time. Or, perhaps you believe the wedding is going to happen and you're actually interested in the wedding, but you're just a terrible procrastinator. And you keep telling yourself, oh, I've got time. And a week goes by and you're still, I've got time. How long does it take to get ready for a wedding? I've got time. And then suddenly the wedding arrives and nothing is ready and you're to blame. Or, Maybe you believe the wedding's going to happen. You're interested in the party that's getting married. You're not a procrastinator, so to speak. But you know what? You just value what you want to do more than this couple. And so you say to yourself, yes, I believe it's going to happen and I love them, but I have this opportunity to go to the lake for the weekend. And then after that, I'm going to go to uh, the football game and there's a party and these things, you know what? I am such good friends with this groom and this bride. They're not going to care. Not a big deal. They'll forgive me. It won't affect our relationship. Sure, they might be mad for a day or two, but they'll get over it. It's just a wedding day. 
It's just one day. And so we might characterize these. We were to think about the ways in which we aren't prepared. Right? We can take all of these examples, all of these little parables, so to speak, and say, we see that probably in all of us. Perhaps we gravitate to one more than another for our own lack of preparedness. Right? Your lack of preparedness for the second coming of Jesus should communicate to you that you are either, one, not believing that he's coming back, number two, disinterested that he's coming back, number three, that you are uh, procrastinating, you just think you have plenty of time, or number four, you're being presumptuous. Jesus won't be that mad. He's, He's too gracious. At the end of the day, yeah, he might be mad for a couple days. I might be on the outskirts of the accepted party, but he's not going to be that mad. And you need to hear the warning of the parable this morning, which he says to the five foolish young women, depart from me, for I never knew you. Your lack of of preparation, whether it's bound up in unbelief or disinterest or procrastination or presumption, may very well meet at the end of days with depart from me, for I never knew you. Can you imagine hearing that? You know, I have a reoccurring dream when I'm stressed. It has slight variations, but it's essentially pretty much the same. I'm I'm in college. Uh, I'm taking a class that I don't like. I've missed a bunch of classes. Everything's riding on one exam, which I've been kind of studying for, but that I have to to do pretty well on. And something happens that makes me miss the exam. Right? Maybe you have a similar dream. But I always wake up from this dream with this pit in my stomach. Like I, like I don't graduate. Like that's the kind of, this is the one class that I need to graduate, and I don't graduate because I missed this class. And you have that sense of, oh, I, I missed it. I wasn't prepared. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And we've all had this feeling at one time or another. But can you imagine how that feeling pales in comparison to the feeling of standing before the risen Christ and realizing that you are unprepared? Gosh, I mean, it, it, it makes me sick. For my stomach to think about that notion of being so unprepared to actually meet Jesus. And so it begins, at least in one sense, to make you wrestle with the question, what, why do you feel sick? What isn't prepared? Right? If you knew that Jesus was coming back a week from today, what would you change? What would you begin to do that you're not doing? Or what would you stop doing that you are doing? That gives you a hint as to your lack of preparedness. The things that come to mind by virtue of those two questions are things which should communicate to you your lack of preparedness. And things that you may need to start to deal with in terms of actually becoming prepared. Or working at being prepared. But so far, we've just talked about the danger of being unprepared, and we also need to talk about the blessing of being prepared. Because the blessing of being prepared exists not only on that day that we meet Jesus, but for right here and for right now. How do we see the blessing of preparation now? Jesus tells another parable just before uh, this one. It's the parable of the, the master of the house, and... There's a master of a house, and Jesus says uh, he goes to sleep, and he's robbed that night. 
And Jesus says, if the master of that house knew the hour that he was going to be robbed, he wouldn't have gone to sleep. He would have stayed awake. And that's the message of the parable. Stay awake. Be ready for the second coming of Christ. In the same way that it is the message of our parable. And yet, even as we look at the both parables and we hear this exhortation to stay awake, to be alert, to be ready, there's this nagging realization that all we're talking about and all Jesus seems to be talking about in the parable is uh, you should be scared to obey. Right? That's, that's how far we've come so far. Because Jesus is coming back, and if you're not ready, that's bad news. You will be excluded, so out of fear of that happening, you had better be faithful and ready for His coming. Now, is that the whole picture? That can't be the entire picture, right? That only our obedience is born out of fear, because if we take into counsel the whole of Scripture, we have places that say that, that perfect love casts out fear, and we can certainly not say that we, our relationship to God, to Christ particularly, is supposed to be simply out of fear. Now, some fear is, is good and okay, and I think you need to be a little afraid this morning. I think most of us live in a place where we have no fear. We just think, Jesus will show up and it'll be fine. He forgives everything. Yeah, I think that's going to be a pretty scary day. A pretty unpleasant day. A, a dangerous day in which some... If we take Jesus at his word, those who thought, you know, based on Matthew 7, there are those who believe that they've done mighty things in his name, and he says to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So there's a good level of healthy fear to have as a result of these kinds of passages. But at the same time, there's got to be something more. Something more going on in this notion of staying awake and being prepared. And indeed, uh, there is. Verse 13 is long-troubled commentators. Look at it with me. It says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now the watch therefore is not literally watch therefore. Literally, it's stay awake. And the reason that people have changed it is that the stay awake part doesn't really make sense. Because back to what I said was the important point, what happens when the groom is delayed? Everybody goes to sleep. Nobody stays awake. Neither the foolish nor the wise stay awake. So this notion of stay awake, which occurs in our parable and occurs in the preceding parable, which is the master of the house, right? obviously we have a sense that it can't be literal. right? Are we committed as disciples of Christ to insomnia? Right? Putting toothpicks in our eyelids so that we stay awake and aren't found asleep at the coming of Christ. Right? Obviously, that's not what Jesus is after. Staying awake is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that speaks to being spiritually awake rather than spiritually dead. In fact, the New Testament often overlaps language of being alive and awake with being dead and asleep. Neither one are literal. They both refer to being alive and awake to the things of God, actually paying attention, or asleep and dead to the things of God. The New Testament would give us a picture of this world in which most people, perhaps even many in the church, are going around to sleep. They're not awake. They're not even alive. They're simply moving through this world in kind of a haze. I'm going from one thing to another, but not really being aware of God and what God is doing in the midst of this world. And so what does it mean to stay awake? To really be alert to what God is doing? 
Paul gives us a hint when he writes in Ephesians, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Arise, wake up, and stay awake. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Well, easy for you to say, Paul. How am I supposed to understand what the will of God is? Well, at least part of it is, don't don't go and do something that's going to put you back to sleep. Don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Remain alert to what God is doing in this world. And it's this staying awake that is involved in our preparedness for His second coming. But understand this, it's that staying awake that actually enables us to experience the abundant life that Jesus has for us here. To go to sleep, to be spiritually dead, you know that feeling. It's moving through this world when God feels distant and you're full of anger and frustration and there's a general sense of purposelessness. That means you're spiritually sleepy. But to be spiritually awake, that means you're experiencing lots of joy and faith and expectation in what God is doing in you and around you. And so how do we stay awake and experience that joy, which is good for us now, and also prepares us to meet Christ in the future? Remember, Jesus' warning is one of love. It's not simply, be very afraid and get ready. There's an exam coming that you may not pass. Jesus' message is, Be prepared, because in preparing, your old self will continually die, your new self will be reborn, and you will know more joy than you ever will have being asleep, being dead. What might this look like on an everyday basis, in a very simple way? Dan Allender uh, tells a story, but he he has this line that's just an unbelievably good quote. Allender writes, All of life is meant to partake in the agency of death and the joy of resurrection. Okay? All of life is meant to partake in the agency of death and the joy of resurrection. Now that is a fantastic quote. And what it means is this. That your life is intended, as God has designed this world and permitted it to go into brokenness, and even though we exist after the resurrection of Christ, we still exist in that brokenness, Your life is intended to engage the agency of death, by which he means all pain and suffering in this world. And it is engaging the agency of death and all pain and suffering that you actually participate also in the joy of resurrection. If you avoid the agency of death and pain and suffering, you avoid the agency of resurrection. You don't need resurrection if you don't engage pain and suffering and death. So Allender tells a story about him personally, that illustrates this. It was his son's 12th birthday party. And his son and and he often exchanged uh, punches, kind of in a fun and happy-go-lucky way. right? Punch on the shoulder, punch on the shoulder back. Well, Allender uh, was uh, hit, his son hit him in the arm on his birthday. And he was 12. And Allender was surprised at the force of the punch coming from his 12-year-old son. He was actually hurt. And so there's this moment where I can't believe I'm physically hurt by my 12-year-old son. So he comes back and and punches back his son, intending 
perhaps somewhat subconsciously, to leave a message like, I am still the alpha dog in this house. And uh, his son is surprised, and he begins, his, he begins to well up with tears. Right? He's been hit, hit pretty hard. And his dad goes, okay, we're done now. And, uh, and his son hauls off and hits him again. Because, of course, well, he's, he's angry. He's hurt. Right? He's been wounded. He can't believe his dad just hit him that hard. And he runs off to his room. And Allender turns around, and his wife and his two daughters are standing there, and all essentially saying, why did you have to ruin everything? You always ruin everything. And he, and he feels like he's suddenly on trial, and he's like, what? There was a, it was just a simple exchange of punches. Why are you upset with me? And he said, you, you overdid it. You went too far. You've, you've hurt your son. You need to go to him. So Allender doesn't want to go to him. He's still, what he's feeling inside is that I, this is wrong. I am being, this is a loaded jury. I haven't gotten a fair trial, but I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And so he goes upstairs to his son's room, who's locked the door and is angry inside. And he appeals to him to come and to talk to him, uh, which his son doesn't want to do. Um, and so uh, this is how Allender recounts the, the situation. He says uh, of the door, I couldn't demand it be opened, nor could I let his anger win by hiding. Parenting is often a process of failing, and the failing again in response to the original failure. As the failures mount, they become patterns that are so regular, they are mostly ignored. Then they are either excused without forgiveness or harbored without awareness. In either case, they add scar tissue to the original wound. Okay. That's, that's a great description of what happens when we refuse to enter in, really, to the agony of death, right? So imagine the situation. Allender's hurt his son, and his, his family is communicating to him that he has partially to blame and needs to take responsibility. He doesn't want to. He doesn't feel guilty. He's annoyed by the situation. He goes upstairs, but he's realizing that there's, you know, a fork in the path. He could avoid dealing with this, or he can press into the pain and the anger of his son, But he realizes that parenting at large has been a series of failures. But the danger in those failures and of not repenting of those failures is they build up and they just become then routine. And if we start to avoid entering the danger and the pain and the uh, uh, death that exists there in the hurt of his son and in the the failure of him as a father, then it can just be routine to do that. To not continually engage in that and do something about it. And then he says it builds up like scar tissue and isn't even noticed anymore for what it is. Instead, he, he, he says outside the door, I failed you terrible. I still don't understand the depth of your anger and I won't be able to do so until you talk with me. If you won't talk, then at least open the door and let me stand before my wife and daughters and tell them in your presence that I failed you and dishonored you. So Allender is beginning to realize the importance of what's going on and he's pressing in. His son won't open the door, but he says, I'm going to humble myself, and I am going to, I want to apologize and repent to you, and repent before those in front of whom I've shamed you, right? You've broken into tears in this public setting as a result of what I've done, so if you don't open the door, I'm coming in, and you don't have to talk, but you're going to have to listen, right? So he's being humble, but he's being strong at the same time. And so eventually, uh, he says, if Five minutes go by, and if you don't open the door, I'm going to break it down somehow. 
And so his son opens the door and is trying to hang on to his anger. Um, but as he sits down um, and he begins to apologize, his son can't hang on to the anger and breaks down just weeping. Now, Andrew would still say, I, did, I still don't understand everything that was happening in the heart of my adolescent boy, right? But at that moment, he, he, um, my vulnerability, my humility, my willingness to enter into that hurt and pain created an opportunity for him to be vulnerable and to acknowledge his hurt and pain. And so he writes of that meeting, uh, but I do know this, Andre, his son, needed, desperately needed, a father who could be humbled and yet would not be weak, who could surrender while also fighting for his soul in our relationship. He needed a taste of God. I needed that desperately as well for my son and with him. I knew God was present in the room and in the sinews of our touch as we held each other. So what do they experience? He knows that his son desperately needs to be loved. He enters in the pain and the frustration of the whole event. And as a result, both he and his son have an experience of God that they would not have had otherwise. His son tastes the love of passion of his father, not in silliness or weakness, but in actually being met in his pain. And his son opens the door for his son to be real in the midst of whatever is going on in his life and all the travails of adolescence. Right? It's a beautiful moment, but that beautiful moment would not have happened if Dan Allender had taken a different course, right? And how easy would it have been to take a different course, right? Oh, well, you, you women always gang up on me. I'm going to watch the game, right? Or, uh, oh, you know, I could, but I'll let him cool off. Something needs my attention in the garage. Or, uh, you know, yeah, I'll get to it. I'm just, I'm going to go pour myself a glass of wine first. And in each of those potential decisions, those other directions that Dan Allender could have gone, instead of entering into the agony of death, the pain and suffering of his son, and the pain and suffering of his own failure, he could have escaped, he could have redirected himself, he could have avoided it. Right? And you can put yourself, you can name any kind of tendency that you have that does the same thing. Right? But by entering into the agony and the pain of his son, and the agony of death in his own life, right? God shows up in a powerful way. And what Allender did was stay awake. Right? Going to the garage or watching the game or pouring a drink were all ways of going to sleep. Being spiritually sleepy, being dead, and as a result, he actually would have missed God showing up. But because he stayed awake, he knew the joy of God and you better believe that Allender is now more prepared to meet Jesus than he was before that happened. And if he had taken any of those roads of being asleep, he would have been less prepared to meet Jesus than before it had happened. Now, one last question. You end up on the other side of that story, right? Do you think for one second that Allender regrets his decision? Do you think after having experienced God in that tender moment with his son, that he's there thinking, I should have poured myself a drink? Or, man, I should have caught the, I've missed 30 minutes of the game. Right? Of course he's not. Because he's actually experienced the Spirit of God at work. Because he was willing to stay awake. He was willing to, be, to work at being prepared. And as a result, he received far more than anything he would have perceived would, would have been granted to him in staying asleep. 
It is desperately hard and desperately threatening and desperately fearful to be awake. Because it's not fun to engage the agony of pain and death. But it is only in engaging the agony of pain and death that you know the joy of resurrection. Stay awake and be watchful. And you will not regret it because you will know more joy than you thought possible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have stayed awake on our behalf. And that knowing what was coming for you, you were prepared and willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Let us be nourished by you now, fed and strengthened, supported, and knowing the joy of your sacrifice so that we might too pursue you wholeheartedly and prepare and be ready to be watchful, to stay awake. Forgive us for the ways in which we put ourselves to sleep. And help us with joy to look forward to a week of unrivaled wakefulness. That we may know more of you and more of your joy. We ask for this great gift because we know it will be to our good and to your glory. Amen.